Good morning. This morning we're going to actually be finishing our series on covenant theology. And we're going to do so by talking about the blessings of the new covenant. And we talked a little bit about them earlier when we, through our profession, we talked about how the covenant of grace is administered in the Old and the New Testaments. And that's the theme of today's sermon, is to be looking at that and see how the New Testament is a better picture of the promises of God and what God has for us. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. I'm actually going to use the entire chapter as my sermon text this morning, so I encourage you to begin turning there. Acts chapter 2. Before we read in God's word, let's go to the Lord and ask him for help this morning. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to to look at the pictures and look at the shadows and the things that you set up in the Old Testament, but to look past them and see you to see you in the things that you have set up for us in the New Testament and to see you as the ultimate culmination of all the promises of God. So Lord Jesus, help us to see that, be convicted by our sin, and also, Lord, guide us to the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as I prepared for this week, it made me think of a time that I climbed a mountain. I did that one time, and it was a small mountain by most accounts. It was like 3,200 feet, so it was still a mountain. So I did do it one time. And the mountain's called Old Rag, and it's found in northern Virginia. It's a very popular tourist kind of place. And it's one of these mountains that you can kind of hike to the top of. And it's called Old Rag because it's unlike most of the mountains in the Appalachians, it's exposed at the top. It's got a rocky summit as opposed to just something that's covered by trees. So it was, it was pretty neat. It was a very different thing that I've, I've never done anything like that, so it was pretty interesting. Um, throughout the hike, it was like a nine-mile total hike, so I'd never done anything like that. So I was excited about seeing the mountain and you know scrambling over the rocks, and that was fun, but I was ready for it to be over almost the entire time. It was kind of one of those weird things that you experience. You enjoy the process, but you're ready for the process to be over. And I was really ready to see the summit. And so you're climbing to the top, and then you see what looks to be the top of the mountain. And that's all you can see. You know, it's like you're you're getting to the top, and you see this peak, and you're like, there it is, there it is. And then when you get there, right as you walk up to the top, you realize that, no, there's the top of the mountain. It's called a false summit. It's a real thing, and it made you feel like it was a false summit. You know, it looks like it should be the top until you get there and you realize it's not the top at all. There was a great view at this false summit. We were still very high up, and it was, it was remarkable. But it wasn't the actual thing. It wasn't standing on top of the mountain and seeing all around you and sitting on top of the rock there at the very top and seeing the sign that says summit. That was, that was the pinnacle. That was the peak. That was what I was going for. But there were several false summits along the way. It's fairly interesting. I didn't expect that. And so, throughout the Old Testament, there are what we could call these false summits that 
unveil something in the future that is much greater than they are. By all appearances, they have all the appearances of the summit. And they, they have the blessings of a summit. And that you get to there and you see the views and it's wonderful. But they're not the actual thing. And so we've been discussing the covenants and how the covenant of works was replaced by the covenant of grace. And how Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant of grace throughout the Old Testament. He's come to fulfill the covenant of works, fulfill the terms of the covenant of works, purchasing salvation for his people. And all of those false summits in the Old Testament, I mean, just think of the ones that we've looked at, the rainbow for Noah, circumcision, the Passover, the throne of David, the prophecies of the Old Testament, the sacrifices of Moses. Each of these things are pointing forward to something much greater than they are. And the New Testament expression of those false summits is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at how the preaching of the word, how baptism, how the Lord's Supper, how these things stand as a much greater expression of those things that came before them. So we're going to look at the Old Testament pictures, see how the new reality in Christ, and how he is the end of all of those things, the purpose of all of them, and how scripture points directly to him. So with that, let's look at Acts chapter 2, standing together as we read from God's word. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying are these not the one who are speaking are, are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language Parthians and Medes Elamites the res residents of Mesopotamia Judea Cappadocia Pontus and Asia Phrygia, Pamphylia Egypt and the parts of Libya beyond belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since this is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. For David says this concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwell in hope. For you will not be abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Before, or being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up of what we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received the Father from the Father the promises of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all those of Israel therefore know, certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord himself, whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and they were added to that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor among all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. So as we, when you come to the New Testament and you get to the Gospels, some would go so far as to say, and I don't necessarily agree with them, but I, I see their point. Some would go so far as to say that the Gospels should be included at the end of the Old Testament rather than belonging to the New. And this is their reasoning, that Jesus is here, he's in, the, in there, but his death and resurrection they represent the ultimate fulfillment of everything that's going on in the Old Testament. And everything after that marks a change 
in the way that the people of God are to be. That doesn't mean that God's expectations change of us, but the way that we view God, the way that we see God, changes. Because of Jesus, we now see God without a veil. If you remember, in the new, when, when Jesus was, was cruci- when he was crucified, what happened in the temple? The veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple was torn in two, symbolizing that the veil that we can see God with is now we can come before his throne with confidence, is what the New Testament says. We have full access because of Jesus, something that believers beforehand only realized in part. And so with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which we just read about, you begin to see this shift as if, as the people of God are no longer just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, because anyone who believes in the Son has life forever in him. Anyone who believes in the Son is called a child of God. Remember what God said to Abraham, who would be blessed? The whole world would be blessed because of his descendants. And who is his ultimate descendant? Jesus Christ. And so the pictures in the Old Testament, they're being replaced with the present realities. And I think this chapter in Acts really marks that shift, wholeheartedly marks that shift. And we see this very full today. And I want to start by looking at how the Old Testament is a shadow of the new. So first, you can see that Peter begins his sermon, and the people there, they, they see the Holy Spirit, they, 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 they see the effects of what the Holy Spirit has done. The men who are waiting, and the women who are waiting in the upper room, all of a sudden come down and begin preaching, and what happens? All of these different countries, who have all of these different languages, all of a sudden are all hearing the same thing. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the Tower of Babel. This has been reversed, right? That curse which God had sent down to spread the people out among all, in all the different languages. Now all the different languages are coming back together and they're hearing one thing. They're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of them are like, what does this mean? And some of them are like, well, they're obviously drunk. Because I guess that's a sign of being drunk. You're talking in a different language. I don't know why they thought that. But Peter stands up among them and he says, no, let's be clear here what is happening. And what does Peter do? He begins preaching from the Old Testament in order to talk about what is now happening here after the, the promised Holy Spirit, after the new covenant realities are becoming real. And it's not that his, it's not all of a sudden that the Old Testament words have changed meaning or form. Their meaning and their form haven't changed at all. Here they are in their full meaning and their full form. But because Jesus has come, because the Holy Spirit has now come among the people, these words all of a sudden have a new fulfillment. He begins pulling prophecies from the Old Testament. Each of them are pointing towards promises that the new covenant reveals. And what does he start with? He starts with Joel chapter 2. The prophet of Joel was talking about a time when the prophet 
like like himself, when Joel and the other prophets wouldn't be the only way to God, wouldn't be the only line of communication to God, but everyone would have a line to God. Why? Because the Spirit was going to come down among the people, and the Spirit was going to rest upon the people of God. We talked about that last week when we preached, when we looked at Jeremiah chapter 31. That was the fulfillment of the new covenant, that the Holy Spirit would come down and that the law would be written on the hearts of men. And he says that they will prophesy and they will dream dreams. All believers now will be able to speak about God. will be able to speak the truth about God. We'll be able to hear the truth about God directly from him. Directly from his word. This isn't a picture, and I, I want to be clear here, when we read this in Acts chapter 2, some have taken this to mean that there's going to be this whole new flock of prophets that are going to be able to foretell the future. And that's not at all what that is. Prophecy is not just foretelling, it's foretelling. And we are telling about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so prophecy in that sense is to be able to speak the words of God, which I'm able to do right here, right now, which all of you are able to do when you teach the Word of God. You're able to talk about the Word of God and teach the Word of God. And you don't have to be a prophet to do so. We're all being designated in that way. And what else does Joel say? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Interesting because Paul uses those same words when he's referring to Jesus. The Lord being Jesus. Joel knew about Jesus. And he was referring to him as well. And, and Peter then interprets further this portion about the signs and the wonders. And he interprets them about Jesus. That Jesus came and he fulfilled the, the signs and the wonders that would be produced and performed in the last days. And you saw them. And what did you do nonetheless? You killed him. You killed Jesus. Even though he was the fulfillment of this man like Joel, you killed him. And then what does he do? He quotes Psalm 16. And why does he quote Psalm 16? To make sure that the people that were there that killed Jesus understand that by killing Jesus, they did nothing but usher in the promises of the resurrection. That Jesus Christ would not be held down by death, but instead would have victory over it. David talked about that all the way back in Psalm 16. It speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death would not be able to hold him. How the Father would raise him up just as he promised. And notice what else goes on here. What else does Peter allude to there after Psalm 16? He alludes to the Davidic covenant, which we talked about. That David would be promised descendants on his throne. But what did David see about this? When David saw this, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ in this. The Old Testament to David, the Old Testament to Joel, was about the Lord who would come. And then he quotes Psalm 110. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted a lot of times. And David wrote this, and he's making sure that the people understand that David, when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, my Lord is Jesus Christ. 
the Lord that David is talking about is Jesus, the one who the entire Old Testament is pointing forward to. And he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter, from the Old Testament, preaches Christ faithfully. And what happens as a result of that? Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And their immediate question was, what should we do? How should this change the way that we view the Word of God? And I want to introduce a couple of applications here. First, brothers and sisters, we have to preach Jesus Christ. The worst thing that we can do is to teach the Scriptures and, even, and I would even go so far as just to limit that to the Old Testament and say teaching the Old Testament, you can do this in the New as well, but teaching the Scriptures from some kind of moralistic bent, meaning that the, the Scriptures are God's little instruction book for life, and they simply just show us examples as to how we should be better people. Because that's not it at all. It does do that, Sure. But that's not the point. What's the point? None of us are good people. Jesus Christ is a good person. And he died so that we could have his righteousness. He, no one lives right at all. We need him to do that for us. That's the point. If you read the life of David and you get from that, man, I wish I could be like him, you're missing the point altogether. David lived his life and said, no, what I have to say points forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we need to preach Christ. And, and I'll say this, if we aren't cut to the heart when we read the Old Testament, we need to check our pulse. We need to check our own hearts. Because the Bible is a story of redemption. It is God's story of redemption. It cuts men and women to the heart, so much so that they desire to be saved right then and there. What shall we do to be saved? What else does it do? And it should do that for us, brothers and sisters. Even in our salvation, we should be wanting more of what we have in our salvation. We should be wanting Jesus more and more. Because the gospel only does one other thing. It brings men and women closer to Jesus, and it does one other thing. It drives them away in disgust. Because they're disgusted by the fact that their false idols are indeed false. And they've come up against the Lord of all creation and he is God, and no, there is no other. And so people who come to the gospel and who are turned away are disgusted because they realize that they're not God. And they'll throw rocks at the real God. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. There's, there's just two ways to come to the, to the word. There's no apathy. There's no, like, let's sit on the fence and let's just write it in. You can't do that. And so if you aren't getting these reactions, you're not reading the gospel... And more than likely, we're not preaching the gospel. This doesn't mean, and I, and I want to be clear here, because I think a lot of my colleagues who are preachers would take this and say that we should be making sure that people feel like they're, they're leaving bruised. Like they've got a lump on their head when they leave, or 
You know, if you don't feel bad when you leave church, you didn't hear any good preaching. Well, I think that's garbage too. Because what should we all be talking about? What is the end of Peter's sermon here? Christ didn't stay in the tomb, did he? If he stays in the tomb, man, I don't have any hope, and I'll leave bruised feeling every day because I have no hope. I have no victory over sin. I have no victory over death. At the end of the day, Jesus Christ couldn't defeat it. What says that I can too? No. Because at the end of the day, we should be hearing about deliverance. And the only way that we have deliverance is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We should leave with peace. We should leave feeling good. Even though we're convicted of our sin, we should leave knowing that we have forgiveness for that sin. That's why every day when I pronounce the blessing on the church, what do I say at the end? Go in peace. Because if you leave here without peace, you didn't hear the full gospel. So let me encourage you with that. And I think second, we need to make sure that we are reading and studying the full counsel of God's word. It isn't enough to just call ourselves a, quote, New Testament Christian if we don't know why the New Testament exists at all or where it comes from. The Old Testament is full of pictures of Jesus Christ. Peter knew that. He preached a sermon from the Old Testament about Jesus. And we would do well to study those pictures, and we would do well to see how they point forward to Jesus Christ. And so next, I want to look at how circumcision is a shadow of baptism. He answers their questions. He says, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit so let's remind ourselves of the function of circumcision circumcision was a mark it was given to all Hebrew males so that they could remember and through them their families after them that they were the people of God God came down to Abraham and says, you will do this to all Hebrew males so that you will remember the promises that I have for you. So that they can remember their commitment to God. This was a lasting mark. It was not something they could just walk away from. It was something they had with them. And it, and it was through them that their families also had this same mark of the covenant. This sign had been administered and they were under the covenant and because of this, everyone who was a Jew received the blessings of that covenant. The sign of circumcision did not ensure that they had any kind of eternal salvation. But it was in order to remember the promises. And what do they need to do in order to have salvation? What do we read in the Old Testament as to why Abraham had salvation and why David had salvation? What did they do that was different than just simply receive the sign? They believed that what Jesus Christ would say would come true, even though they wouldn't see it. Abraham wouldn't see it. Abraham wouldn't even see the promised land. The only land he owned when he died was the land he was buried in. But he believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Simply being Jewish and being circumcised is not your ticket to heaven in that sense. I think that we've established that the only way to heaven, Old Testament or New, is Jesus Christ. So the Jewish person nonetheless experienced all the blessings of being Jewish, all the blessings of being God's people, 
yet they only experience salvation through belief in the eternal promises of God. And so how does that transition then to baptism? So I'm going to ask you to turn to a few places, so you want to keep your uh, finger there in Acts chapter 2. We're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 4. You remember Jeremiah's message to the people was not a happy one. It was essentially one saying that because of your unfaithfulness to me, you're going to be thrown into exile. And I think we have a picture here of what God's intent was through this and why circumcision should be pointing forward to something greater than itself. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 4, the first four verses. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return, if you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord of men, of Judah and Israel, of Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil, and your de- the evil of your deeds. So circumcision of the flesh, the sign that Abraham was given, the Lord seems to suggest here and does very plainly that this should point forward to something that is an inward reality that the people of Jerusalem currently aren't experiencing, that they've just simply received the sign, but they aren't actually believing in the promises. They aren't actually being changed. Turn forward to chapter 9 of the same book. We'll see another similar theme. Chapter 9, Jeremiah 25 and 26 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all those who dwell in the desert who are cut off, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. The days are coming when I will punish those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Because what does God require? Circumcision of the heart. A change of heart. That the circumcision that you receive physically as a sign of the covenant should should represent what's inwardly happening in the people. And remember we studied last week how that change of heart can only take place through God himself as he sends his Holy Spirit to do what is represented outwardly, to do inwardly what is represented outwardly. So let's look in the New Testament now. Turn to Titus chapter 3. And here we see that very picture. But now it refers to something else. Look at chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, 
he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What is this pointing forward to? What is it that this might point forward to, that the, this washing and regeneration that the Holy Spirit is actually doing inwardly, this points forward to the, or this pointing to the sign of baptism. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, but God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is now at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so, baptism, now, is say, now Peter is saying that this baptism that is supposed to wash our spirits, this is symbolizing what happened in Noah's day. What happened in Noah's day? Well, they came through the water and they were saved. But does that mean that all the people that got off the ark believed? No. All the people that got off the ark didn't, weren't actually saved. I mean, right after what happened in the ark, the whole section of Noah's family was kind of cast out as unbelievers. And so baptism doesn't save any more than the ark did as far as eternal salvation, but it did represent a salvation, and it did represent something that was actually happening. It points forward to a necessary act, and that necessary act is the one that the Holy Spirit does, that he actually washes us and makes us, makes us whiter than snow. He makes us a member, but he makes us truly one of God's children. But what did this do? Well, bad, the ark made the members of Noah's family members of the covenant, just like baptism makes us a member of the covenant. So let's look at Colossians, last one. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And here you'll see a connection. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is the circumcision of the heart that God was talking about. Verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith and powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together in him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And so here you see this connection between baptism and circumcision that the New Testament authors make. And so now, what is the function of baptism? Let's turn back to Acts chapter 2. What is, how does Peter use baptism here? What should we do? Repent. 
and be baptized. This is entrance into the covenant of community. For the forgiveness of your sins, this is what the Holy Spirit does. You will receive the Spirit. The Spirit is going to do this work. Baptism doesn't actually do that for you. This physical act, just like circumcision, did not save the Israelites in the Old Testament. Baptism is not saving them in the New Testament, but it points forward to something that the Holy Spirit is doing. And who is this promise for? For you and for your children. There is no change in the Old Testament framework. Who was circumcised in the Old Testament? All males. Entrance into the covenant and all of their families after them. Who's baptized in the New Testament? All the children of believers and the believers are baptized in the New Testament. And those who received the word were baptized that day. 3,000 souls were added. So baptism functions just as circumcision did, as an entrance into the covenant community. However, this time, what's different? There's no pain. There's no blood. Every individual can partake of the sacrament. Jesus took the pain and he shed his blood so that people might be saved. And we no longer have to take part in signs that involve pain and blood. Members of this covenant now receive the benefits of being a part of true Jerusalem or the church. And so we call those people who have all been baptized the visible church. Now, not everyone who is in the visible church has been circumcised in the heart. Because not everyone who receives the outward sign has experienced the inward reality. Just like in the Old Testament. Nothing has changed. Some merely play the game. Some merely say the right things. And just read the gospel writers. Read, I mean, John, what does he say? You're not saved according to your blood. You're not saved just because you're a Jew. You can have done all these things. You can have been sacrificed on the eighth day and done all these things. But none of that saves you. What saves you? Belief in the Son, Jesus Christ. That is how you can call yourself the Son of God. It's the same today. We baptize our children not to save them, not as a safety net for them, but as for entrance for them into the covenant community so that they, along with the family, might receive the blessings of the covenant. But that doesn't save them. What is it that they must do in order to receive salvation? Repent. That is what they must do. They have to believe. They can, there's no sign that can save them other than Jesus Christ himself. He is who saves them. And so if that's you, if you're just merely playing the part, or if you think somehow that your baptism has got you secured, you're relying on your own works. Read the New Testament. They'll tell you what your works do for you. They earn you death. Only Jesus Christ gives you life. You have to repent and believe so that you can have salvation. Everyone who's actually been washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit, we call this the invisible church. This is the group that Jesus came to save, his people.
So next I want to look at the Passover quickly. The Passover in the Old Testament. What did it do? Well, the Passover was instituted in Exodus chapter 12. This is when the people, when God came to Moses and said, listen, have the people get ready because something crazy is about to happen. I'm going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt and Pharaoh's going to let you go. And I'm going to pass over every door that has the blood of the lamb on it. And you are to go out and kill an unblemished lamb and paint his blood on the doors of your house. And I will pass over your house. But to all those who do not have the blood, I will walk in and I will destroy. And the Jews are to celebrate that from Exodus chapter 12 all the way back when they were in Egypt until Jesus came. But what happened? Read the Old Testament. Not only did they just misplace God's word, they quit doing the sacraments. They quit having their males circumcised. They quit doing the Passover. And so what happened as a result of that? What happened as a result of, do this and remember what I've done for you? Well, we're not going to do this anymore, and guess what? We're not going to remember what you did for us. And that's where we find us find Israel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel in these chapters where, or these books where the people of God are being judged. Years and years went without them celebrating, and they behaved just as you might expect. So when Jesus came, a Jewish man celebrated the Passover, and that one fateful night celebrated the Passover with his disciples the night before he would die, he instituted on that night the Lord's Supper. These are the words that we read every Sunday. These are the words that we'll read again shortly. And he took the elements of the supper and he gave them a much more symbolic significance than just simple wine and bread. Because he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. And he took the wine and he offered it and he said, this is my blood, which is for the remission of your sins. But notice what party left out. What was the main course in the Passover feast? You're to go kill this lamb, and this is how you're to cook it, and this is how it's to be prepared, and this is what you should eat. But notice, he left the lamb out. Why? Because who is the unblemished lamb of God? Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. We no longer have to kill a lamb in order to receive the benefits of the blood because his death was once for all. And there's no reason to re-sacrifice him over and over as the Roman Catholics do. There's no reason to sacrifice him and, and or even want these sacrifices to be to come back in, as some might say that we need to do. There's no reason to do that because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. And now we offer up his body as the bread and his blood as the, as the wine. And we use those as symbols. He gave us, the church, something that we should do often. Not just once a year. So that we would not forget the sacrifice that he made. And so that we could be strengthened as we walk with him. And you see this here in chapter 2. Look at verse 42. What are they doing? They're devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They're hearing the word preached. And they're doing that regularly. But what are they doing alongside of that? They're in fellowship. And they're breaking bread. And if you read down further, 46, they're breaking bread in their homes. 
And I think, yes, this probably refers to the fact that they were just eating together. But I also know that it refers to the fact that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Regularly. Happening much more frequently than once a year. And that's not to say we do it once a week here. That's not to say that that's necessary. But I can't imagine why we as a church would want to take something that he has given us to remember him and to, and to strengthen us in our faith and why we want to do it any more or any less frequently than we do. And some have said, well, that cheapens the Lord's Supper. And um, I would say to them, no, it cannot be cheapened. It's the thing that the Lord gave to us, and it can't lose its value because we somehow have become bored with it. If anything, taking the Lord's Supper often helps us and it shows us more and more its value. And so I hope that that's what it does for you. The Lord gave us this sacrament as a way to remember him, as a way to bless us, just like baptism, pointing forward to the reality that one day, where will we join Jesus when he calls us to come home? What is it called in heaven? The great marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll stand with him victorious sitting side by side with one another and sitting with them. So in conclusion, the shadows of the Old Testament, the prophecies, the sacrifices, circumcision, baptism, all of these things, they're like the false summits at Old Rag. They're beautiful and they're magnificent in their own right, but they are not the summit. Jesus Christ is the top. And those things which he has given to us, preaching of the word, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, these are the things that his new covenant community, that's us, should use to glorify him and to build up our own souls. And notice what happens at the end here. Verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. And that's not to say that if we are doing these exact things that our church will get bigger. I don't think this is like a paradigm for church growth here, so so don't hear that. But I think it is saying that this is how God grows his church through the preaching of the word, through the administering of the sacraments. These very plain, seemingly mundane things. Isn't it something that God would continue to use those mundane things throughout scripture? Why? Because he alone deserves the glory, and we should give all the glory to him. This is how he grows his church. There's a lot of gimmicks nowadays to fill pews, but it's only these things that are written in the, God's word that can change the hearts of men. And so what should we do in response, brothers and sisters? We should cling to those things. We should cling to the gospel. We should not lose heart in the administering of the sacraments. We should not lose heart in the preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, but rather be encouraged by that. That is how the Lord will grow his church. And thanks be to God, he will use us to do just that. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, I think it's very tempting for us oftentimes to want to seek out things that would According to good motives, I think, might fill, fill your views and, and increase the numbers here. But Lord, what we really want 
is for people to be circumcised in the heart. For people to hear your word preached and to say, what now shall we do? So, Father, help us to do that. Help us to be true to your word. Help us to see these things that you have left behind, baptism, the Lord's Supper, as ways to strengthen us in our faith as we see them. So, Father, help us to grow in your grace. Help us to be changed by your word every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.